Our need to stand still in a world filled with chaos and uncertainty has never been more important. You are invited to take this moment to wrap your heart and mind in narratives from the Hebrew scriptures, connect to its deep guidance, and move toward practices for encountering the presence of God in your life. Thanks for listening today to the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Bruff. The following recording is part of a series called Be Still and Behold, 10 Weeks Exploring God's Presence in the Hebrew Scriptures. It was recorded in Winnipeg, Canada, for Prairie Presbyterian Church, where I am the pastor. This is part 10, God with Everyone. We acknowledge that we are gathered on Treaty 1 land, first entrusted by Creator God to the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, the homeland of the Red River Métis. Where can I go? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee? Where can I flee from your presence? O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God, They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Where can I go? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee? Where can I flee from your breath?
This is the final service of Be Still and Behold, which was our summer series. As we come before God in confession today, I'm going to offer some space for silence. While this series is ending, the work of the church continues, and I want to leave space for your own confessions, especially at this time of year, which often includes transition, even for those of us no longer in school. Let us pray. God of unimaginable presence, you are with us always. You're in the gifts we give, the ways we use our creativity. You are there when we engage in ritual and when we sit in silence. There is no place we can flee where your presence cannot find us. As we pray today, we take time to reflect in silence and offer our confessions to you. Lord, hear our prayers. We confess all the times we have run away. We confess all the times we've forgotten your presence. We confess all of our selfish choices. We confess the times we have shunned your gifts. We confess the times we took on too much. And we confess the times when we made it all about us. Lord, hear our prayers. In your mercy, forgive us. Amen. Friends, hear the good news. God is with us always. God sent his son into this world to live, to walk among us, and to die on a cross in order for our forgiveness and be raised again. There is nothing that we could ever do to separate us from the love of God. And there is no sin so great that God cannot forgive. Know today that you are forgiven and be at peace. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And I invite you to share a sign of peace with either those around you in your home or where you're watching this or to reach out to someone, whether it's by phone, by message, even by mail, and share peace with one another. Do not fear, O soil. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, you animals of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for your abundant rain, the early and the later rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. 
I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God, and there is no other, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Then afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about these two words that are in the middle of our reading today or near toward the end of our reading. Just two words, then afterward, then afterward. There's something before and then there's something after. Now, our Bible passage today comes from a book of the Bible that probably lots of us don't automatically turn to, the book of Joel. It's just a few chapters long, similar to last week's when we looked at Jonah. It's a book of a prophet. And Joel is addressing a couple of things, but something that's really pressing for the people of his time is... uh, is a particular natural disaster that had happened to them year after year. And uh, we may not be familiar with it anymore, um, but they had had really bad locusts. <laughs> and <laughs> might think, why are we talking about locusts when we're supposed to be talking about and wrapping up our series on the presence of God? Um, but it's actually important for understanding what Joel was talking about and how that actually might apply to us. Um, We live in a part of the world here in Manitoba where we actually are quite familiar with particular natural disasters having impact on things like crops and farming. And that's exactly what this was about. For us, it's usually floods or sometimes drought. This year, it's been flooding that's been a big problem for us. Um, So when they've had locusts show up and just eat everything in sight, crops just gone, wiped out, completely lost, no fruit trees uh, anymore, no fruit being grown on the trees. This is a major problem for them. So this is really, Joel kind of addresses a couple of things. One is the major economic impact that this has on the entire people of Israel, the entire people of Judah, um, how this is going to really be a big, big problem for them. It has been a big problem for them. Season after season, they've had a complete loss of, of their crops. So this is about economic impact. Um, Their entire uh, system is based on agriculture. So it's not like there's other industries and it's not like there's a bailout coming or anything like that. So this might lead to famine. Um, This is really about food security as well. But there's there's also something embedded in Joel's message about the earth or just the basic environmental impact that we might actually relate to. So not just things like, oh, this has affected farming and the economy, but also how, you know, the, there's, there's something that is coming from the outside, this alien invader, the, the locust that's coming and is causing a big problem for the way that things, we think things ought to be in balance environmentally, which leads us back to where we were at the very beginning of this series with the Garden of Eden. 
locusts shouldn't be there is how they would have seen this. They would have framed this theologically as, you know, we're supposed to be living in this beautiful garden that God has provided for us. And yet we just get beaten down all the time and we can't uh, seem to get back to the way it's supposed to be. Uh, Joel actually uses the image of the locust to even talk about the uh, foreign invaders, like actual outside invasion or, or other problems that might be happening in Judah. Um, and we can kind of do the same thing. Because as we look around us, we can see that there's not just problems of natural disasters, uh, but this might raise for us problems of uh, climate change. Um, but it might go even farther than that. Just generally looking at our world and our lives that things are not really the way they're supposed to be. And I think one of our primary responses to when we do that, and we actually take a look at how things are and see that things are not right One of our primary responses is despair or fear. And we'll hear uh, in a moment, I'm going to read again a little bit from Joel. We've already heard it, but you'll hear part of it is about do not fear. Trying to address that primary response that we have of despairing or just worrying about, well, what's going to happen next? You know, if, um, if the temperature keeps going up, what's going to happen this year it's flooding, or maybe there's wildfires, or what's next? How, how, what's going to become of us? Um, another response that we might have is cynicism. And we might look at this and think, well, if they were talking about how things weren't right in Joel's time and in the Bible, and we're still kind of sitting here looking at things and saying, well, things still aren't right, our conclusion is just maybe to say, well, nothing ever changes, so why bother? Things can't get better, and it's all just a cycle. You know, history just repeats itself, and it's just going to keep going around and around and around, so why bother? Like, let's just throw up our hands. But what about deep inside us? What about deep inside us? I, I kind of feel like we don't actually want to be cynics. I think we want to have hope. Deep inside us is a hope that really can't be put out, that, that there is a better way and there's a hope that it can actually be restored. It can actually be brought back to the garden. We can actually get back there. And I think Joel speaks to that deep hope that we have. So when we hear Joel's words, I'm just going to read to you a little bit more. Um, we've already heard these words, but I want to read these again And just to comment along the way and just hear this in Joel's situation, but also our own. So they've been dealing with this uh, loss of crop and loss of food and economic impact and, and this idea that, you know, we're not in the garden anymore. And how do we, how can we get back? And then listen to how Joel addresses that in these words. So this is in verse 21 of the reading that we read today. He starts with, do not fear, O Soil, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Isn't that interesting? The prophet addresses the ground. Don't fear, don't be anxious, O soil, right? The locusts have come, but don't fear. The Lord has done great things. Then he continues and says, Do not fear, you animals of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. 
the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Again, isn't that that interesting, right? Not addressing the human beings, but addressing the soil and the animals. Don't fear soil and don't fear animals because the pastures of the wilderness are green, right? There, There probably is a wilderness out there, but there's probably a wilderness that's been created by the locusts that have come in, right? They've had to deal with that. And the prophet is addressing the animals saying, you're once again going to have food to eat. The tree is going to bear its fruit. The fig tree and their vine give their full yield. And only then does the prophet address the people. In verse 23, O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God. Why? For he has given the early rain for your vindication and has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. So rejoice because God is bringing rain. Okay, so there's maybe been a drought. Now the, rain, now the drought is over and the, and the rain is coming. And then we read, The threshing floors shall be full of grain and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Right? So there's this promise that there's going to be this abundance from the harvest again. So the economy is going to get back on track, right? Because we're going to have, the the farms are going to be functioning again. There's going to be food for people. The animals are not going to just die off. Um, And there's this sense that things are going to be set right, right? Uh, The rain is going to be properly happening at the right time as before. And there's going to be this abundance of grain and wine and oil, um, just as it was, you know, in the garden. Um, the prophet continues and says, I will repay you, speaking on behalf of God, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. Those are all three different kinds of locusts that have been talked about. My great army that I sent against you. So talking about the, the locusts as this army that comes. And then we read, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has, dwe- who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So all of this is going to happen where things are going to be right again. Uh, This agricultural society is going to be kind of put back together, put back on its feet. You're going to eat in plenty and be satisfied. People aren't going to go hungry anymore the way it has been the last few years. That's the promise. But the very last promise in verse 27 is this. It says, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I, the Lord, am your God and there is no other and my people shall never again be put to shame. So the last promise is not just the putting together of society and making things seem right again, but also that God is going to be in the midst of God's people. So we're completing this series on the presence of God as described in the Hebrew scriptures. But really, (laughs) the whole story is about God's presence, right? The whole story of the scripture is about God's presence. And to be in God's presence is actually for everything to be set right. So when we think of the Garden of Eden, it's perfect, But it's not just about the garden, is it? It's not just about, oh, well, there's the fruit and the trees and 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 all of that. It's the gods there that the human beings 
walked with God in the garden. So we think of that garden being restored. Think of the presence of God being restored. Really, the pinnacle of all goodness and rightness in the Hebrew scriptures is God's presence remaining with God's people. When God is with God's people, that is when all is well. And yet, when we hear these things, does it actually stir hope in us the same way it may have stirred hope in the people in Joel's time? Because these words are so old. Has it really gotten better? But I wonder, though, if the people who were alive in Joel's day also asked that question when they looked at their own stories and their own history. Because their own stories and their own history tell it like this— the human beings were sent away from the Garden of Eden, and would they ever return? Their ancestor Abraham wandered and wandered and eventually settled in the land of promise. But then, as the years went on, a famine eventually forced the Israelites to go to Egypt, where they became enslaved. But then God, through Moses, led them out into the wilderness, which which actually, for a lot of it, seemed worse than the life they had had in Egypt. Yet, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they did get to the promised land. Restoration, it seems like it's happened. There's a land flowing with milk and honey until it all goes wrong again. Eventually, they end up in Babylon, in exile, away from their homeland for at least 50 years until, yes, they can return. Here it is again, the, the renewal. But when they get back, the renewal isn't quite what they'd hoped for. The temple they build is smaller. God's presence isn't experienced in the way it once was. They seem a long way from Eden in this restoration. It's all enough to make you want to run in the opposite direction, when God asks you to take a step of faith. And yet, the prophet Joel has this word for the people. He has another word for them. There is hope that God's presence will be known. All will be well and restored for Israel. This is what he says to them. But he doesn't stop there. He says something else. He says, all this restoration is going to happen. And then afterward, wait, there's an afterward? I thought this was the whole point. Isn't the whole point getting to the garden, having these things restored, getting rid of the locusts and getting everything to grow again and life is going to be full and we're going to have abundant grain and wine and and isn't that the point? But actually Joel says, no, no, no. Then afterward, something else is going to happen. So you see how there is actually a cycle of things going well or even being perfect to then going very badly and then a time of wilderness or exile to then a kind of renewal. So you see how it starts with being with God and then alienation from God and then reunion with God. But when Joel gets to that final reunion with God, Joel says, and then afterward, Something else is coming. Joel says this, Then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
all, all. And he continues, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. You notice how he gives specifics on who the all the people are, right? So he says, I'll pour, he, he could have just said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then we'd have to kind of work out for ourselves, well, who is that really? What does that mean? Does that mean like all of Israel? Does that mean, you know, all the men? Probably for many years it's been interpreted that way. Does it mean who are people after all? Who do we mean when he says all flesh? But then he does spell it out. This is one of the places in scripture where it's very specific that is sons and daughters. And when it mentions slaves, even on the male and female slaves, I'll pour out my spirit. These words that Joel spoke might be familiar to some of us. Um, Peter quoted from them on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples and they started speaking in other languages, talking about the wonders of God, and, and people asked, what's going on? Peter quoted this passage to say, this is what you're seeing, the Spirit being poured out on all people. They took that with them in the time of the early church. It, it actually led to a particular way of being God's people. The people who held to this reality that the spirit was being poured out on everyone, male and female, slave and free. They believed that the spirit had shown up, that this was God's presence for all. And so they had signs of God's presence among them. They had the Holy Spirit among them. Even though in that time of the early church, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, even though the world around them was still not renewed, most of the things about the world would tell them, no, it hasn't really happened. God hasn't really set all things right. Yet they had signs of God's presence. They had the Holy Spirit among them. Now, the greatest sign was actually Jesus Christ himself. In him, the great story of God had been embodied Think about it. God became flesh and lived among us. God with us and us with God. And then what happened? Then there was alienation and estrangement from God. Jesus is executed and he dies in humiliation and suffering. God is rejected and God experiences alienation, not just from us, but also within God's very self. And so we have the same pattern that we've had, starting with God and us together, and then this breaking, this alienation between us and God, and then resurrection, new life, new possibility, renewal that then happens, the, the ultimate sign Jesus is the ultimate sign. God has now participated in the story of the people of God in the most profound way possible. And then the afterward. 
there's an afterward. God sends the Spirit for all. Even though the great renewal of all things was not visible, God had come in Christ to inaugurate the kingdom in a new way. The afterward was starting. We will sometimes say that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. That's what we're talking about, is that there's signs, that there's something new that is breaking into the world, and yet we can look around us and see, well, it's not really there yet, is it? And we see this throughout the Christian scriptures, this sort of, the kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is among you, the kingdom of God is within you, but also this vision that the kingdom is coming. We see it throughout. We see it in the Apostle Paul's writings. Uh, Even though he is surrounded by a culture that is patriarchal, that is that is the imperialism of Rome, where slavery is common, where public executions are, are normal as a way of stopping things like political dissent. You know, there was no, like, going and protesting against the government in Rome's time. And a whole host of other things that were wrong with the way the world was. Paul in that context, could still write this. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 28. The early church believed that they were living in the afterward They saw God's spirit available to anyone, all male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, any race, any gender. And this was in opposition to so much of what they could still see in the world around them. They lived as a sign of the new reality. It was a way of life. Living into the reality of the renewal of all things even if they couldn't see it yet, but aware that God's presence would always be available to them. It was a life acknowledging that though they weren't back in the garden, God had somehow brought and was still to bring the garden to us, and not just to us, but to people very much not like us, to all. It was not a life of cynicism, but a life of hope. And this is the life to which we are still called. Amen. So as this service is taking place around the Canadian holiday of Labor Day, I thought it would be appropriate to share a prayer for Labor Day. And this prayer was written by Reverend Thomas Waitzel of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Let us pray. Let us pray to the Lord of all creation, from whom comes life and work and purpose. Almighty God, when you formed us lovingly out of the dust of the earth, you breathed into us the breath of life and gave us work and purpose for living. You placed Adam in the garden to till and keep it. Through our work, you made us co-creators with you shaping the world in which we live. 
You gave dignity to our labor by sending your son to labor with us. By our labor, you enrich the world. By our labor, we enjoy the fruits of creation. By our labor, we find direction and purpose. And by our labor, our families are made secure. For providing varieties of work and for blessing us by our labor, we give you thanks, O Lord. For those who plow the field and those who make the plow, for farmers and farm workers, for steel workers and machinists, for those who work with their hands and those who move the earth, we give you thanks, O Lord. For those who tend the sick and those who seek new cures, for doctors and nurses, scientists and technicians, for those who keep notes and those who transcribe, we give you thanks, O Lord. For those who think and create, for inventors and explorers, for artists and musicians, for those who write books and those who entertain, we give you thanks, O Lord. For those who work in offices and those who work in warehouses, for secretaries and receptionists, for stalkers and bookkeepers, for those who market products and those who move them, we give you thanks, O Lord. For those who inspire our minds and those who motivate us, for teachers and preachers, for public servants and religious servants, for those who help the poor and those who work with our children, we give you thanks, O Lord. For those whose labor is tidiness and cleanliness, for janitors and sanitary workers, dry cleaners and maids, for those who produce cleaning products and those who use them, we give you thanks, O Lord. For those who sail the waves and those who fly the skies, for captains and attendants, for astronauts and deep sea drivers, divers, for those who chart and those who navigate, we give you thanks, O Lord. You bless us all with skills and gifts. You provide us opportunities to use them for the benefit of others as well as ourselves. Guard and protect those who labor in the world. Bless the work of our hands, O Lord. Look kindly upon those who have no work. Give health to the sick and hope to the bereaved. And keep us from laboring only for greed. Make us loving and responsible in all that we do. Creator Lord, you are the source of all wisdom and purpose. You are the blessing of those who labor. Be with us in our labor to guide and govern our world. Give all people work that enhances human dignity and bonds us to one another. Give us pride in our work and joy in knowing that our work finds its source in you. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
Special thanks to Ashley Boychuk for her reading and singing of the psalm, Aaron Whitaker for her tireless work on the liturgy, Wes Keeley for all his technical wizardry and producing the original videos for the series. You can find the video version of Be Still and Behold on the YouTube channel for Prairie Presbyterian Church. Visit prairiechurch.ca to find out more and to get the accompanying PDF. I'm Matt Bruff, pastor at Prairie Presbyterian Church in Winnipeg and host of this, the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. Thanks for listening today. Take care.